Hello, beloved listeners. This is Octavia's Parables, our podcast where we are reading Octavia E. Butler's classic works one chapter at a time. We are in Wild Seed and we are close to the end. This week, we're reading chapter 13. And it's not easy. <laughs> Just heads up. Um, I think y'all know this by now about this book, but there's no, none of these chapters are like, oh, yeah, light and breezy. Um, mm-hmm. So we're heading into this chapter 13. But before we hop into it, Toshi, I know that this is a huge year for you and per parables. Do you have any announcements for us? Yeah, I have some announcements. Um, first, our marine mammal meditation, Makalani, is out. You can see it. B. Steadwell did this beautiful film for Gorgeous. it. So that's on YouTube. And it's Makalani plus Eye of Heaven equals She Knows. That's the whole long title. It's also sitting up on my Instagram page, too. That's so true. you can go go view sitting it there. Up on my page. Yes. It'll, it'll be on Bandcamp <laughs> very soon if you want to buy, like, multiple versions. And, and Bandcamp is, like, it. the way to make sure the artist is actually getting fairly paid for the work, right? Bandcamp like is Bandcamp. great because okay. yeah, I do. I like I like any of the, the you know the vehicles where people are actually paying for the content yes. as opposed to like a company. And as you know, here yeah. we are on yeah. Spotify and everything, but they really wipe out like any possibility of income stream for your work. Good. So you're mm-hmm. you know so Bandcamp, you actually support the artists, and then uh, you can listen for free on SoundCloud. So. Mm-hmm. There's video, there's there's SoundCloud, there's there's ways to do it. And then if you you feel like you want to invest in this project and also pay the artists, then there you go, right? They're uh-huh. on band camps. I love that. And um, you know, we all we all know what's happening, but definitely uh, Parable of the Sower is is supposed to be in Boston next month, Champaign Urbana next month. Ann Arbor in March. Wow. And the DC area in April. We are loving our collaborators. We are loving the Parable Path and all of these places. We've been reaching out to each other and uh, beautiful things are happening book reads and all kinds of community uplifting. So we are looking forward to that and maybe one or two more, which I can't say now. So this is cool. Uh, Hopefully it'll work out. Okay, well, I hope all the ones that are already scheduled and all the ones that are secretly being scheduled will all happen <laughs> and that we get everything. <laughs> um, like my greed knows no bounds. So, That's um, wonderful. Well, I am, I'm just in writing mode. I'm, I'm working hard on the second novella of Grievers, um, which is coming out mm. later this year. And That's great. Before that, a collection called Fables and Spells is going to come out. That's a bunch of spells I've written and a bunch of short story fables. That should be out in May. And Sonia Renee Taylor and I are doing something called the Institute for Radical Permission. And we've created a journal to go along with it so that even if you don't take the course, you can kind of access the unlocking technology of giving yourself permission to fully embody the miraculous life you've been given. So... Uh, lots of projects this year, lots of projects in motion and, um, and all of them, of course, root right back here to Octavia. So <laughs> let's dig in, you know, Wild <laughs> da-da, Seed, da-da. right? This is such a, a transformative text for this time. So we are in chapter 13 and tell us what, what happens, Toshi. 
Well, like two songs came to me for this this chapter, and one is um, this song "Can't Hide Sinner," and I I love the way Sweet Honey does this song, um, especially if you got to see them live when my when my mom was in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have to be before two thousand four, mm-hmm. and the thing about it is, uh, my mom and Natanji both play uh, play Shaker Ray on this song. And then Natanji the, the would play, they would just be hitting these, like, the, the bass of the shaker race. So it would just be like, boom, 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 boom. You know, it had that vibe to it. And then they would be singing, you can't hide, Santa. And the whole group can't hide. You can't hide, Santa. But there's this one thing. You'll run to the rock and the rock will be melting. And, <laughs> and you know, we have this in all kinds of black music. You run to the rock for rescue. And then a lot of the refrains are there will be no rock. Um, and it's really talking about somebody who's extended themselves so far past their spiritual possibilities of being in alignment with the living world that that all of the places where they would try to go to restore themselves will be gone. Yes. And so this this comes to me on this chapter. And then the other song that came to me is Black Gold of the Sun. Uh-huh. I am the black gold of the sun. Yes. I love that song. Yeah. You know, you you can find that song. There's a couple of awesome versions of it. So let's get it. Doro returns to Anyanwu's beautiful place of free people working together. And he returns bossy and he returns with two boys. Mm. And Joseph, who Anyanwu had to kill, uh, Joseph is buried in the um, slave graveyard, and Stephen, her beloved son, he is buried in the the where the master's graveyard is. He's just very far away from them, and in their their places, and everyone is is working and in and in mourning. And then Doro arrives with these two little boys, and Anyanwu is just like, "Why? Like, why are you here? And why are you bringing me these people?" And you know, Doro doesn't really know what happened, you know, but he find, he knows that Joseph and Stephen aren't there. Yes. So he, he thinks they're both dead. And what we find out is that Joseph was um, late in transition. Mm-hmm. So when Doro brought him, he could do nothing. He was like a guy and he was like, let him, you know, breed with her daughter right. and maybe something interesting will happen. Uh, he was very, very afraid of Doro because Doro killed his brother after transition. So this was, you know, I'm not trying to say anything nice about Joseph. He he did horrible things with his gift. Yeah. But part of it, it starts with Doro. You know, Doro has seeded all of the like, you know, chaos of this person by the way that he exists in the world. And so Anyan was really mad that he would bring her somebody who was doing this. And he is like, I would not bring somebody like this to you. I had no idea. And what they realize is that, you know, he transitioned very late at 24. And at this point, he's like, where, where is Margaret? Let's, you know, let's find out, you know, where he is. And, um, Mm. you know, in the meantime, there's this little sweet thing with these two little boys where, he comes in kind of looking scraggly, like a scraggly white man. <laughs> He's yeah. like, bring us food and bring us, you know, <laughs> everything. And uh, despite her annoyance, she is always very, very kind to children. And so she sends these kids off to get something to eat. And 
as they're going through this whole thing of learning what happened and having these conversations, you can see this is almost like a little clock is ticking for her, like yeah. where she is, she is not, you know, she's getting weary. Yeah. And so they have the conversation and we learn that he did transition at 24 and that he begged Margaret not to tell anybody because of the way Doro is. He is very afraid. And then he did terrible things. And so now we know what all of that is. And then he asked if he should stay a little while. And Anyanu says, will you leave if I ask you to? And he says, yes. And she was like, go. So he shrugs and he leaves the next morning. And then Margaret kills herself. Mm. And she kills herself and Anyangwu is just full of grief. Like it's just way too much. And she's vibrating this grief everywhere. And Louisa, the great one, um, says to her, listen, can you go away? Why don't you go to the sea? Yes. You're exhausting everybody. And this is such an incredible, yes. you know, thing where how how you've <laughs> been in groups and then you're like yes. somebody has some exhaustive energy and y'all are like can you can, do you need to go away for a minute or do you need a hug yes. what's going on yeah. so they basically you know tell her to go away and Anyangwu sends for her white daughter who can see ghosts and who can feel impressions of ghosts on just about anything so she has to be very very careful about where she goes and what she does and because she will she will know all of the deaths and yeah. and she will see them she'll see how they happen mm. so for example she is staying away from the place where Stephen you know fell and died because she didn't want to see that over and over again and she has a husband named Cain and Cain um, was raised by his white father who educated him but did not free him before he died. Mm -hmm. And so he was in Texas. He had to run away from Texas, and he moved to Louisiana, and he passes as a white man. Mm -hmm. And he loves uh, Leah. This is the daughter. Mm -hmm. And he has a little bit of, like, you know, being able to share, but it's not very strong. And he, but he adores Leah and they, and they get on and he was hiding his story until he realized how strange her family was. And he was like, oh, y'all do this? Well, okay, <laughs> I ran away from Texas and I left my father, like, <laughs> you know. So um, he's, there's this beautiful place where he's, you know, kind of having a conversation with Anyanwu and, you know, asking her questions. And he has a hard time, you know, really dealing with the fact that his wife's father is a woman. Uh, so, you know, but at the same time, he seems to be very, very, very intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. And so they get into just like conversations and, and then he asks her about like how she travels and she says, by bird, by a, a big dog, you know, um, she says, sometimes it's better for me to run as a dog. It's safer. Yeah. And he's like, where are you going? And she says, like, to the nearest school of dolphins. Like, she is just going to go be with the dolphins and go be a dolphin. And she says, if you like, you know, I'll try to share some of this with you. And he says, I, you know, it was Stephen who really could get open that up for me. And now that he's gone, not so much. And with that, she is off. Yeah, She's gone. And a month passed and she returns and she returns as a, you know, a big bird and Rita person who is, <laughs> it's like greeting her has jokes and is like, you know, you, I guess you hungry right now and brought her some rabbits. Mm -hmm. And so she gets a warm welcome home 
and she eats her rabbits. And as she's, you know, eating her rabbits, she's looking and sees this fine black man um, standing next to to Helen, her daughter. And she is like, mm, who's that? So she goes up into her room. She gets a, takes a nap. She gets herself together and she comes down late uh, in the middle of dinner and she's all dressed up. She is looking good. And unfortunately, you know, she comes into dinner and just to find out that Louisa has passed away. And that was like her person. Mm. And it was no, you know, dramatic event. She just, she just died in her sleep. There was no pain. And her daughter confirms it for her. And she just gets up, goes into her library and just doesn't want to be bothered. And of course, who opens the door, y'all? Everybody say, Doro. Everybody say Dora <laughs> opens the door <laughs> and interrupts her. And she's just like, why are you, you know, she's just like, why are you here bothering me? But she is in such grief that she asks him, like, what does he do? Like, how does he deal with all of this dying and all of the grief behind dying? And of course, he says, he, you endure it. You know, he's like, there's nothing else to do but endure it. But Someday they'll have kids who won't die young. Mm. And they they go into talking about their relationship and her talking about like, you know, yeah, you wanted to kill me. And he's like, that was a mistake. You know, he said, I was I was doing, you know, my behavior out of habit. And she is just she's in like that tender, vulnerable, angry, upset, like every emotion place. And he looks at her and says, do you like this body? Yeah. And he's like, it's a gift for you. I got this for you. And, you know, she's like liking the body, obviously, and horrified at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, who was this person? Mm-hmm. Who did he kill to have this body for her? But in her state, she lets him take her to the sofa and make love to her. And she's, I love Octavia. She found she did not mind particularly. That's what Octavia said. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes she turns a line and I just laugh. Exactly. I'm I'm just like, Octavia. (laughs) Um, And this like gets her into this like relaxed zone. and And in her vulnerability, Doro says he wants to, he wants to try something with her. And he's saying, like, you know, for her to trust him. And he says he's not going to hurt her. And he really wants to share something. She is in this, like, what should I do now? And and he, like, kisses her very gently. And it's a, it's a surprise to her. And he says he means her no harm. And I'm just going to read this yeah. from the page because there isn't really a way to sum this adventure up. So he says, he asks her to look at him and she's she's looking at him and she's very, very close to him. And I just want everybody to remember how, how Doro takes bodies. Like he yes. just has to, to touch you and decide he wants it. He doesn't even have to touch you. He just has to decide that he wants it. Yeah. He just has to jump his being into your body and then you're dead so she right up next to him and he says abruptly she was in darkness falling through darkness towards distant light falling 
She felt herself twisting, writhing, grasping for some support. She screamed in reflexive terror, could not hear her own voice. Instantly, the darkness around her vanished, and she was on the sofa again, with Doro gasping beside her. There were bloody nail marks on his chest, and he was massaging his throat as though it hurt him. She was concerned in spite of herself. Doro, have I hurt your throat? He says, not much. I was ready for you, or I thought I was. He says, alter your hands. And he asked her to make like claws of her hands. And with a with a shrug, she formed a powerful leopard claw. And he said, look, I didn't even weaken you. My control is as steady as I thought. Now change back. He fingered his throat. And he says, I wouldn't want you to grab me with those things. And she asked, what are we doing? And he says, do you see that the thing you felt has not harmed you in any way? And she's like, what is it? And he's like, trust me, I'll explain all I can later. I promise you for now, relax. I'm going to do it again. And she says, no. And he (laughs) says, it won't hurt you. He says, it won't hurt you. It will be as though you were in midair under Isaac's control. He would never have hurt you. I won't either. He said, it will please you somehow as though we were making love even more. And all right, she's, she wonders. So she, <laughs> she gives it another shot. He tells her, don't fight me this time. I'm no match for you in physical strength. You know that. Now that you know what to expect, you can be still and let it happen. Trust me. She lay watching him. There was darkness again, the feeling of falling. But after a moment, it seemed more like drifting slowly only drifting. She was not afraid. She felt warm and at ease and not alone. Yet it seemed that she was alone. There was a light far ahead of her, but nothing else, no one else. She was drifting toward the light, watching it grow as she moved nearer. It was a distant star at first, faint, flickering. Eventually, it was the morning star, bright, dominating her otherwise empty sky. Gradually, the light became a sun, feeling her sky with brightness that should have blinded her, but she was not blinded, not uncomfortable in any way. She could feel Doro near her, though she was no longer aware of his body or even her own body lying on the sofa. There was another kind of awareness, a kind she had no words to describe. It was good, pleasurable. He was with her. If he had not been, she would have been utterly alone. What had he said before, the lovemaking, before the relaxed, easy sleep, that because of him she would never be alone? The words had not comforted her then, but they comfort her now. I'm going to jump a little bit. She did not know what he did, nor what she actually did, but it was startlingly good. It was a blending that went on and on, a joining that it seemed to Nyamu she controlled not until she rested. Pleasantly weary did she become to realize she was losing herself. It seemed that his restraint had not held. The joining they had enjoyed was not enough for him. He was absorbing her, consuming her, making her part of his own substance. He was the great light, the fire that had englobed her. Now he was killing her, little by little, digesting her little by little. In spite of all his talk, he was betraying her, 
In spite of all the joy they had just given each other, he could not forgo the kill. In spite of the new higher value he had tried to place on her, breeding and killing were still all that had meaning to him. Well then, so be it. So be it. She was tired. Chapter 13. Wow. Thank you for the summary and thank you for that reading, Toshi. Mm. You know, this chapter has so many pieces that are really tender to hold because it's, I think, so much about what does it mean to survive in a time of great loss, which feels very relevant for us right now. What does it mean to be the people who have survived? And when so much of what is taking our lives is in some way related to our choices, even though we're inside of these larger systems that don't allow the choices to fully, you know, it's like, I feel like I keep seeing this thing of like, is it individual choices? No, it's the government. And it's like, it's both. It's both (laughs) things. You know, it's like, it's, we have a government that is not making great choices. And then we have a bunch of individuals also not making great choices. And then we have individuals trying their hardest. And even as you try your hardest because of the systemic things, we can't protect ourselves the way we need to. I feel like that's very much what is happening in this chapter, right? Like Mm. Doro is the, the overarching condition. And these are all these people trying to make choices to survive um, that may or may not be the right choices. So the questions I have around it are really designed to try to bring this home for us. And the first one is, have you survived gaslighting? Have you survived gaslighting? Mm. Like really having someone telling you that you have power, telling you that you don't have power, you know, trying to strip away your sense of reality because I think that's so much of what's happening for all of these people with Doro. And I think anyone who lives in the U.S., <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> you, you know, you, you're still alive. You have probably survived it. So just think about that. Like in your own life, how did you survive? How did you mm-hmm. find and stay in touch with your reality? Did you have to get away from people, get away from others in order to do so? Or connect with the right kind of others to do so? Like, who in your life helps you return to reality. Mm -hmm. And then this question of what Margaret is carrying, you know, that she kept a secret, right? She kept it. She was asked to keep a secret from someone who thought that they were asking that in a way that would save their lives. And she thought this will help save this person's life if I don't share this. And so just a question for you, have you ever kept a secret for someone else? Have you kept a secret that led to harm? Have you kept a secret that you felt manipulated to keep? Mm -hmm. And what was your process of self-forgiveness as all of that played Mm -hmm. out? Like, how did you step back, begin to understand why you made the choices you made? Where was the self-compassion able to enter? When I read this chapter, I I feel so tender. I'm like, oh, I want someone to sit with Margaret and soothe yeah. her spirit, you know, recognize like you didn't cause this situation. Um, yeah. You're all trying to survive these abusive conditions. So just have some tenderness there. And I think that question, have you felt the weight of survivor's guilt? Have you felt the weight of survivor's guilt? Just that sense of... Mm. Why me? What is my responsibility inside of this? And how do I make the most of the life that I have? 
because everyone doesn't have it. Right. Um, what wisdom do you have around surviving? And Toshi, do you feel that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's difficult. You know, sometimes I can see somebody asking me to hold something and I know I'm not going to do it and I run away from them because I can like take the, you know, the steps forward and see where it's going to end up. And I I literally kind of pretend like I can't hear what people are saying to me sometimes. Mm. Like I just, I just, I'm like, I can't hear that. Yeah. And they're talking and everything, but my whole being is like, we're not listening to this. Yes. Like we're not going to hold it. We're not going to carry it. We're not going to absorb it. We're not going to, you know, three years later be the center of something because it was said like we're not, we're not doing any of that. And it's like, I'm a puppet. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's just like, I'm a puppet. And I, and I, you know, my mother would sometimes tell me to send puppet Toshi to a meeting and not myself. And Puppet Toshi just really doesn't give a fuck. That's right. She knows how to look. She knows how to look like Toshi, and she knows how to talk like Toshi. Yeah. But she is not taking. She's like I'm the abuse like, of this or I'm the, the, the heaviness. Is a, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm the yes. avatar. Wow. And I think, and I think sometimes it's it's like helpful to understand that you don't actually have to bring yourself to every single thing that somebody wants you to be at, and you might have to exist in the space. Yeah. And it's saved me so many times. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of Lauren's destiny. Yes. You know, because I think of the destiny to take root amongst the stars is like a constant lift your head up off the ground yeah. and see beyond the conditions that you're in. Yeah. Right. So if your destiny is to like, you know, just find a place to, to live where you can work and make money. Then we all know in Parable of the Sower, like yeah. where they got you. Yes. You know, if that was only your destiny, that got broke a thousand seven hundred times. But if your destiny is to take root amongst the stars, then you move you move through that and yes. then you keep going. Yes. And so I think that idea of like, you know, sometimes activating, you know, my puppet Toshi or sometimes just like not is me. I my vision is someplace else and I understand. Yeah. Now that I have lived some life, I understand the weight of what is being said to me. That's right. And I'm refusing to carry it. That's right. That's somebody else's weight. I'm not having it and I'm not sharing and I'm not protecting. Yeah. And the other thing I've said is if you do this in front of me, I'm telling everybody. Yes. And <laughs> wow. I'm like, if you do this in front of me, I'm telling everybody. Yeah. I've been doing that since I was a kid because I wasn't a, a big druggie. And so a lot of my friends <laughs> did a lot of drugs. You're like, I'm going to tell you, mama. And yeah. I was like, and it was dangerous. I was like the black kid of, around a bunch of white kids who were drugs. And I just be like, you do this in front of me, I'm telling everybody. And yes. they would go away. And yeah. I got invited to very me. few parties. But <laughs> well, I, I knew where I was. You still yeah. made it to coolness, so you're okay. I made um, it, girl. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. Like, I think of, you know, what you're talking about really is boundaries, right? It's just like that that mm-hmm. that is yours and that is not mine. And I feel like I definitely move through the world that way now where I'm like, the more I fortify my boundaries, the more I understand how unfortified they are societally. Like, it's just like, oh, we are not trained to have them because they're not 
it doesn't work for capitalism if we have boundaries. It, it mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't work. We won't be such good cogs in the system if we start to have a sense of our self-worth and our and our outer edges. And That's also right. if we start to have a sense of like, you can't take from my mental health and my physical health and my well-being in this way. And mm. I think that clicked for me. And I'm like, oh, it's not, I don't want to blame people for not having good boundaries. I don't want to blame people for not being able to hold that condition. But the things I have had to learn to do is to have those good boundaries and then to grieve because, you know, people are going to continue to make choices that will lead to pain, lead to suffering, and sometimes lead to the end of their lives. And the lesson I think this past year has been, I'm not in control and things are not going to all make sense. Mm -hmm. Or if they do make sense, it's a divine sense that's beyond my comprehension. And there's a lot of that for me inside of the survivor's guilt dance. It's like, it's not always a reason. It's not like, oh, I'm living some life that is so much more valuable than anyone else's. Or my, you know, like, I'm like, I could take the time to be with everyone in inside of every piece of work that they're doing. But I, again, I wouldn't be able to move towards my own destiny. I think my mm-hmm. destiny includes my grief. And I've also been sitting with that. And I'm like, oh, like these losses are as meaningful as, as I can make meaning of them. Mm-hmm. I have survived, for instance, my friend Charity Hicks died and, you know, she was hit by a car in New York and mm. she died when she was 44. And so, you know, I'm 43 and I, I think about that, that I am like, I'm a, I'm a survivor and my life is not more valuable than Charity's life. Right? That's right. But I carry her with me. I, I weave her into my stories. I weave her into my songs. I mm-hmm. weave her into my destiny, right? Everyone who knew her weaves her into their destinies. And I think right now, those of us who are living are carrying so many more destinies with our own. Right. Um, yeah. So here we are, survivors. And mm-hmm. a question I have, you know, this makes me think about the powers, you know, the powers that we all have. And I was really moved and made curious by this piece around Joseph that he transitions late and that mm-hmm. actually a lot of Anyanwu's children or descendants transition later. And the Doro's mm-hmm. kind of noticing that pattern. And it's interesting to me on a lot of levels. But again, bringing it home to us, I'm like, how many of us, quote unquote, transition late, right? Come into some aspect <laughs> of our power late mm-hmm. in the game, you know, where it's like, oh, I thought I already knew the kind of adult I was going to be, but actually I'm queer <laughs> or actually I'm trans <laughs> or actually I'm there a freedom fighter or actually, you know, I'm an artist or actually something else. The, the power, the gift that I brought wasn't even unveiled until you know, for me, I, I feel like it wasn't until my 30s that I really started to understand, like, holy shit, like, I have a superpower, right. but it's not the thing I thought, you know. Um, <laughs> and I'm good at that, but that's not, you know, being good at something and having it be like, this is the activating force of my destiny. <laughs> those are different, right? And wow. again, I'm always blaming capitalism, but I do think that capitalism really mutes our ability to notice our powers because our powers are the thing that make us distinct and different. And so a question I have for our listeners is, were you late to your transition? Are you late to your transition, right? Is it Mm -hmm. still to come? Are there powers that still need to be awakened in you? And how can those be awakened responsibly? How can you find the mentors, the teachers, the community 
the folks who can actually hold you to transition in ways that don't cause harm as you go through that change, right? That it doesn't have to be a lashing out at everything that you have been or everyone that has loved you. Um, it could be a holding and an expanding and a growing. Mm. Mm. Love that. Yeah. I love that. It just feels feels cool to just even vibrate on that. Right? I, cool. I, I'm like yeah. thinking about all my late bloom. Like I just, for the podcast I do with Autumn, we just interviewed these two creators who both came out as trans in their 50s, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wow, <laughs> you know, like what does that unleash? And mm-hmm. it doesn't negate the life you lived before that, but it does open up this whole other possibility of like, oh, this is myself. This is right now I can act for himself. So yeah. And then the last questions I have, there's a big one around grief. There's a lot around how, what it looks like to see Anyanwu grieving. And I love that the community, I love that Louisa comes and says, you need to go because of the impact it's having on everyone. Like you're such a powerful figure in our community. You need to take that grief and go feel it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, for our listeners, I'm like, what would be your equivalent to going off and becoming a dolphin, <laughs> going <laughs> off somewhere? And, you know, to me, that metaphor of going to take your grief to the ocean, like that's what I have literally done with my grief, you know, up mm-hmm. until these pandemic years. That is how I have, you know, every year I've gone to the, ocean and and given been in great ceremony because I'm like, I can cry enough here. And it's, it's not, you know, the ocean can easily carry my tears. It's so vastly salt water. Yes. But what is that equivalent for you? Like, what is the equivalent that you can do while maybe you're still in home or still in community, but you still need to be in that dolphin self? What kind of space does your grief actually require? And do you have a sense in your community or in the circles that you move in of how your grief is impacting each other, right? What does grief do in an empathic circle or empathetic circle, right? Yeah. And again, right now, I think we're in this place where in the public commons, there's a a dearth of empathy, And Mm -hmm. you can, you know, the fact that we're having these conversations around like, well, you can go back to work after five days. You don't have to get a (laughs) test. Like you can send your kids into a super spreader school environment. Like we're not going to give you childcare or (laughs) where you, yeah, you can lose your job. It's like, it's fine. Like the collateral damage of this pandemic, you know, there's no empathy for what people are actually having to go through from those who are meant to hold and protect and set policy here in the US, you know, and I think a lot of other countries are are facing this too. Mm-hmm. And maybe sit down if you have time today to write or to have this conversation with a friend, what would look different in the US if we had enough space for the grief that we're currently holding? Like mm-hmm. how would it change our work schedules? How would it change what we think of as vacation time, off time, weekends? How would it shift what we think of as public ritual, public holiday? How would it impact your daily life, your meditation practices? What would it actually look like if grief was given adequate room? Room that was equivalent to the amount of loss Mm. we're experiencing. There's just like not been really a national like anything around 
around the the crisis that like is meant to acknowledge the loss of life and you know work and creativity and joining like there's just been nothing like it's a it's you know it's just like this manipulative like corporate you know functionality like it's just all being run by you know when you really realize that delta the head of delta airlines like wrote a letter and said like we need you to cut this in half and then she just did it you know and what the head of the cdc and i don't know if she did it by herself or she did it with a bunch of people or if she got so much pressure i don't know what her situation is but her name will always be on this you know talk about holding something (laughs) that you maybe can't hold yes you know talk about holding secrets this is the second time that she's made an announcement like that like i remember last summer when she was like take you can take your mask off indoors if you're vaccinated and go you know, party and go to clubs and everybody just like ran around and, you know, thought, oh, yay, it's it's almost over <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. I mean, we're going to learn our lessons, y'all, but it's yeah. it's interesting, but it's not shocking because that's who this country has always been. Yes. And, you know, the, the country never, the administration of the U.S. Has, has never had a spiritual line. And it's never had a value to life. Mm. And it's never even attempted to, you know, have a justice platform, equality. It just keeps making the the worst and worst punishments for people actually being alive. Yes. And doing what they're supposed to do. (laughs) So you just get in trouble all the time here. They're just figuring out, like, how can we make it it hard, 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 hard. Yeah. I mean, and there's something about being, like... I hope I can say this, you know, I hope I can say this precisely, but there's something about being able to feel guilt that mm-hmm. gets, it, it. it's not distributed e- evenly. <laughs> so, you know, those of us who are, are trying so hard to be in the intervention and trying so hard to keep ourselves alive and our people alive and organizing to save the planet and save everything else, there's this immense guilt I see amongst those folks, immense guilt among parents who are put in impossible circumstances mm-hmm. around like, how how can I keep my child safe? Immense guilt amongst people who, who are paying attention and feeling and caring. And then a total lack of guilt from people I'm like, <laughs> or a lack of anything visibly, you know, recognizable as guilt, I'll say, because I, I don't know what happens in the dark and in the bathroom mirror and all those things, but uh, mm-hmm. a public lack of accountability you know, that feels related to a lack of like, oh, I am guilty. I, I created these conditions. Like I mm-hmm. said something, you know, that that misled people to thinking if you have a vaccine, you can't transmit this. <laughs> you know, I, I said something that misled yeah. people and through that misleading, people think I can go to a concert now <laughs> or, you know, we just the, I'm like that you can just trace your impact. And then how do you start to mm-hmm. have. I, I think there's a big conversation for us to keep being in around how to how to move from, you know, because I'm not interested in creating shame anywhere. Right. Right. I, I'm like, that's not useful. I think what's useful, though, is being able to be like, oh, I need to take accountability for what I have said and what I have done and the impact it had so that I can make better pronouncements and be much more precise, be much more. I'm like, <laughs> you know. There's some responsibility there. And I feel like Doro is 
in some way you mm-hmm. can feel this happening in Doro. Um, and that's actually the next question I have is what is Doro learning or wanting to seem to be learning? <laughs> Cause it's a little hard to always, <laughs> you know, my trust of him is, is non-existent. Yeah. So yeah. You know, there's always this moment of like, but but there, it seems like he wants to be perceived as learning that mm-hmm. he can't keep killing Anyanwu's babies and that he wants to be seen to be learning. Like, I I would never have brought you someone who I thought could cause you harm, right? It, which mm-hmm. is preposterous for him to say, given everything he has done prior to this moment, but right. he seems to be learning. Oh, that wasn't right the impact that it had on the community and the impact that it has on Anyanwu, that wasn't right. I don't want to keep having that impact. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think he's learning? Do you think he's projecting that learning? Is he mm. trying to be closer to her? Is he trying to still control her? Like, how do you read this? Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. about that. Reflect on that. Right. There's always a question, I think, in this book, especially as we get close to it, is... Can Doro be saved? Can Doro be healed? Is he trying to heal himself in some way with Anyanwu as a presence, as a life force, right? Or is he about Mm -hmm. to kill her, right? And the final question I have is how vulnerable are we when we are tired? Mm. That's the question snapping my fingers over here. Yes, because Anyanwu would never have been in this position if she wasn't exhausted by grief, exhausted by loss, exhausted mm-hmm. by trying to navigate this abusive condition, this abusive human, she would never willingly just have laid with this person, just been like, okay, take my life, eat it. Mm-hmm. But how vulnerable do we become when we are tired? That's that's such a powerful thing to think about. It really kind of helps helps me think about the conversations that we're not having in our um, right now about our trajectory yeah and to the future and i like i've been trying to be like what we are we having the right conversations like we are we really talking to each other and telling the truth are we so inside of the the dynamic of you know covet reality that we're almost like you know making that a separate like oh oh we're on pause while we deal with covet right. and then and then at some point, COVID will be gone and it will start up again. Right. And, you know, every industry that we're in collaboration with that has great, you know, invasion in our lives, they, they haven't paused at all. They're taking advantage of COVID or, you know, creating more systems because of COVID. It's kind of like yes. um, what happened when Bush was president. Yes. And we were like, oh, my God, you know, 9-11. Oh, my God, war. Oh, my God. And then Bush was like the Patriot Act. You know, this Patriot Act will help protect us from terrorism. And it's just like all it's done is been a great participant in stopping movements and hiding people in the system and doing horrific things. And so here we are in this other dynamic. Oh, COVID. But this is the year. This is the year of midterms. Exactly. And the midterms, like, you know, are so important this year i can't even like say this enough yes are so important even if you're like i don't want to be a part of politics i don't care so important this year (laughs) i I just don't because i'm like like, you're not being a part of politics you're trying to protect your your basic 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 rights you're trying to you're trying to protect everybody you're trying to protect yourself you're trying to protect 
your kids that you have. You're trying to protect uh, infrastructure. You're trying to protect the planet. You're trying to you're trying to protect everything. So in the midterms, the fire that we had to get Trump out of office needs to be like you know twenty, thirty times more hot in these next elections. That's right. I mean, I think there's something so important there, Toshi, about like. We can't just let our organizing potential be unleashed in a reactive mode. Exactly. Like, oh, we have the right enemy. So now, but it's like, no, actually, like the way that we lose is not by not being able to articulate ourselves against an evil enemy. It's by not being able to sustain our struggle in those moments when we could advance or, you know, like I was talking to a dear friend yesterday and we were saying like, you know, when we, when we talk about revolution, when we talk about organizing and uprising and all of those things, there's always this sense that we're going to be outside of the conditions. <laughs> you know, it's like the people <laughs> are going to be going through this and like, we're going to be over here with all these solutions. It's like, our, or no, we're the people, right? We have all, yes. we've all got battle scars. We've all lost people to COVID. Many of us have COVID right now. Like that's what's happening. We're not outside of the conditions. We're in the conditions and we are exhausted and this is the best moment possible probably to make the case for why we need a different economic system and why we need a, a governmental system that pivots. So mm-hmm. um, it is the time is now. Yeah. And it's, uh, and I think that weariness, I'm really grateful to you for, for that question because we, people are, are weary. We're like weary from our ancestors. Like we're weary from our grandparents. We're right. weary, weary, and when we see these same people and and we don't see no bright ideas and we don't see how they could possibly, you know, get anything accomplished because they're so interested in and compromise as a as a tool of solutioning. Exactly. Which sometimes is, but you know, sometimes it isn't. Yeah. And then you find out that like one person can change everything in yes. government. One person can hold up movements, one person can keep all of these things from now. It is weary and it is it is tiring and it is exhausting and it does pull you away from the battle and pull you away from the context. And, you know, as as Anyamu was just like, you know what? I'm tired. Yes. I'm tired. I'm tired. Like, I'm tired. You, you know, you mm-hmm. have exhausted me completely and I am tired. And I feel like a lot of us feel that way at this really really crucial 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 time yeah in our in our journey you know how will you ever transform our situation if we are led by people who are really mostly concerned with violence and exploitation yes and we Mm. you know these are that's it's just that simple to me And so that's, you know, that visioning of, of moving yourself as if you know, beyond this, where you could be or where you will be is the, I want to make it a salve or I want to make it, you know, some tea or I want to make it some smoke you burn and let it wash Mm -hmm. over you as you go, go through your days. And spend some of your currency on this uh, emergency that we're having right now. Yeah. (sighs) May it be so, right? Just like I do think Mm -hmm. that there's a, 
I feel like I hang in the balance of that, you know, sometimes just so tired and then realizing, and maybe this I'll say and we'll finish, but there is something for me about it is right at times to surrender, but you have to surrender to the right place, to the right thing. You have to surrender to the right Mm -hmm. people, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the vulnerability I see here and that I see in us often is like, fuck it, I'll surrender. But it's like, I'll surrender to using Amazon, (laughs) you know, I'll surrender to (laughs) some monster instead of like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, for me, I'm like, I need to go hug my mom. (laughs) You know, for me, like, I'm like, I'm so tired. I need to like go to the friends who know me and don't require any performance or require anything other than my presence, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, yeah, don't deny that we are so tired and that we need to surrender. But then I do think having that community, having some sense of like, who can I surrender with? Who can hold me when I'm tired? And that I can trust it to keep me safe when I sleep. So. Mm. Oh, that's great. There we are. Chapter 13, y'all. Octavia does it. Again, every time. So Octavia's Parables is hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and the beautiful Toshi Regan. Our producer is Kat Aaron. Our show art is from Krista Franklin. We're transcribed by Jess Pinkham. And you can find us on Twitter at Oparables, Patreon at patreon.com slash Oparables, where we really appreciate your support. And you can read transcripts for all episodes at readingoctavia.com. Woot, woot. Music for Octavia's Parables is You Don't Know the Time, written and performed by Toshi Regan, and the Sower Song, written by Bernice Johnson Regan, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, Memorial Hall, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed.